Chapter Nine of The Two Gun Men by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Tom Penn. Would you be a character? The sun was still a shimmering white blur in the great arc of sky when Ferguson rode around the corner of the cabin in bare flat, halted his pony, and sat quietly in the saddle before the door. His rapid eye had already swept the horse corral, the sheds, and the stable. If the horseman that he had seen riding along the ridge had been Radford, he would not arrive for quite a little while. Meanwhile, he would learn from Miss Radford what direction the young man had taken on leaving the cabin. Ferguson was beginning to take an interest in this game. At the outset, he had come prepared to carry out his contract. In his code of ethics, it was not a crime to shoot a rustler. Experience had taught him that justice was to be secured only through drastic action. In the criminal category of the West, the rustler took a place beside the horse thief and the man who shot from behind. But before taking any action, Ferguson must be convinced of the guilt of the man he was hunting, and nothing had yet occurred that would lead him to suspect Radford. He did not speculate on what course he would take, should circumstances prove Radford to be the thief. Would the fact that he was Mary Radford's brother affect his decision? He preferred to answer that question when the time came, if it ever came. One thing was certain. He was not shooting anyone, unless the provocation was great. His voice was purposely loud when he called, Whoa, mustard, to his pony but his eyes were not purposely bright and expectant as they tried to penetrate the semi-darkness of the interior of the cabin for a glimpse of Miss Radford. He heard a movement presently, and she was at the door, looking at him, her hands folded in her apron, her eyes wide with unmistakable pleasure. "'Why, I never expected to see you again!' she exclaimed. She came out and stood near the edge of the porch, making a determined attempt to subdue the flutter of excitement that was revealed in a pair of very bright eyes and a tinge of deep color in her cheeks. "'Then I reckon you thought I had died or, or stampeded out of this country,' he answered, grinning. "'I told you I'd be coming back here.' But the first surprise was over, and she very properly retired to the shelter of a demurely polite reserve. "'So you did,' she made reply. You told me you were coming over to see my brother, but he's not here now. Had he been less wise, he would have reminded her that it had been she who had told him that he might come to see her brother. But to reply thus would have discomfited her, and perhaps have brought a sharp reply. He had no doubt that some of the other two diamond men had made similar mistakes, but not he. He smiled broadly. Maybe I did he said. Sometimes I'm mighty careless in handling the truth. Maybe I thought then that I'd come over to see your brother. Well, we have different thoughts at different times. You say your brother ain't here now? He left early this morning to go down the river, she informed him. He said he would be back before sundown. His eyes narrowed perceptibly. Down the river meant that Radford's trail led in the general direction of the spot where he had seen the fleeing horseman and the dead two-diamond cow with her orphan calf. Yet this proved nothing. 
Radford might easily have been miles away when the deed had been done. For the present, there was nothing he could do except to wait until Radford returned, to form whatever conclusions he might from the young man's appearance when he should find a two-diamond man at the cabin. But anxiety to see the brother was not the only reason that would keep him waiting. He removed his hat and sat, regarding it with a speculative eye. Miss Radford smiled knowingly. I expect I have been scarcely polite, she said. Won't you get off your horse? Why, yes, he responded, obeying promptly. I expect Mustard's been doing a lot of wondering why I didn't get off before. If he had meant to imply that her invitation had been tardy, he had hit the mark fairly, for Miss Radford nibbled her lips with suppressed mirth. The underplay of meaning was not the only subtleness of the speech, for the tone in which it had been uttered was rich in interrogation, as though its author, while realizing the pony's dimness of perception, half believed the animal had noticed Miss Radford's lapse of hospitality. "'I'm thinking you're laughing at me again, ma'am,' he said as he came to the edge of the porch and stood looking up at her, grinning. "'Do you think I'm laughing?' she questioned, again biting her lips to keep them from twitching. "'No, I wouldn't say you was laughing with your lips.' laughing regular. But there's a heap of it inside of you, trying to get out. Don't you ever laugh inwardly? she questioned. He laughed frankly. I expect there's times when I do. But you haven't lately? Well, no, I reckon not. Not even when you thought your horse might have noticed I had neglected to invite you off? Did I think that? he questioned. Of course you did. Well, now, he drawled. And so you took that much interest in what I was thinking. I reckon people who write must know a lot. Her face expressed absolute surprise. Why, who told you that I wrote? she questioned. Nobody told me, ma'am. I just heard it. I heard a man tell another man that you had threatened to make him a character in a book you was writing. Her face was suddenly convulsed. I imagine I know who you mean, she said. A young cowboy from the two-diamond used to annoy me quite a little until one day I discouraged him. His smile grew broad at this answer, but he grew serious instantly. I don't think there's much to write about in this country, ma'am, he said. You don't? Why, I believe you're trying to discourage me. I reckon you won't listen to me, ma'am, if you want to write. I've heard that anyone who writes is a special kind of person, and they just can't help writing, any more than I can help coming over here to see your brother. You see, they like it a heap. They both laughed, she because of the clever way in which he had turned the conversation to his advantage, he through sheer delight. But she did purpose to allow him to dwell on the point he had raised, so she adroitly took up the thread where he had broken off to apply his similitude. Some of that is true, she returned, giving him a look on her own account, especially about a writer loving his work. But I don't think one needs to be a special kind of person. One must be merely a keen observer. He shook his head doubtfully. I see everything that goes on around me, he returned. Most of the time I can tell pretty near 
what sort of a man is by looking at his face and watching the way he moves. But I reckon I'd never make a writer. Times when I look at this country, at a nice sunset, for instance, or think what a big place this country is, I feel like saying something about it. Something inside of me seems kind of breathless-like. Kind of scared me. But I couldn't write about it. She had felt it, too, and more than once had sat down with her pencil to transcribe her thoughts. She thought that it was not exactly fear, but an overpowering realization of her own atomity, a sort of cringing of the soul away from the utter vastness of the world, a growing consciousness of the unlimited bigness of things, and insight of the infinite power of God, the yearning of the soul for the understandings of the mysteries of life and existence. She could sympathize with him, for she knew exactly how he had felt. She turned and looked toward the distant mountains behind which the sun was just then swimming, a great ball of shimmering gold, which threw off an effulgent expanse of yellow light that was slowly turning into saffron and violet as it met the shadows below the hills. "'Whoever saw such colors?' she asked suddenly, her face transfixed with sheer delight. "'It's certainly pretty, ma'am.' She clapped her hands. "'It is magnificent,' she declared enthusiastically. She came closer to him and stretched an arm toward the mountains. "'Look at that saffron shade which is just now blending with the streak of pearl striking the cleft between those hills. See the violet tinge that has come into that sea of orange and the purple haze touching the snow caps of the mountains. And now the flaming red, the deep yellow, the slate blue. And now that gauzy veil of lilac, rose and amethyst, fading and dulling as the darker shadows rise from the valleys. Her flashing eyes sought Ferguson's. Twilight had suddenly come. It is the most beautiful country in the world, she said positively. He was regarding her with gravely humorous eyes. It certainly is pretty, ma'am, he returned. But you can't make a whole book out of one sunset. Her eyes flashed. No, she returned, nor can I make a whole book out of only one character. But I am going to try and draw a word picture of the West by writing of the things that I see. And I am going to try and have some real characters in it. I shall try to have them talk and act naturally. She smiled suddenly and looked at him with a significant expression. And the hero will not be an Easterner to swagger through the pages of the book, scaring people into submission through the force of his compelling personality. He will be a cowboy who will do things after the manner of the country, a real unaffected carefree puncher. Have you got your eye on such a man? he asked, assuring himself that he knew of no man who would fill the requirements she had named. I don't mind telling you that I have, she returned, looking straight at him. It suddenly burst upon him. His face crimsoned. He felt like bolting. But he managed to grin, though she could see that the grin was forced. It's getting late, ma'am, he said as he turned toward his pony. I reckon I'll be getting back to the two diamond. She laughed mockingly as he settled into the saddle. There was a clatter of hoofs from around the corner of the cabin. 
Wait, she commanded. Men is coming. But there was a rush of wind that ruffled her apron, a clatter, and she could hear Mustard's hoofs pounding over the matted mesquite that carpeted the clearing. Ferguson had fled. End of chapter 9